Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 to 18. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and upon their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you because this is your word, and we know that Christ has paid the penalty for our sins and has offered forgiveness. We ask you to help us to comprehend this truth and to truly believe it, not only to understand it, but to truly believe it and to live our life accordingly. We want Christ to be exalted in us for all that he has done for us. So may our faith be a genuine faith, a true faith, a faith that is founded on Christ and Christ alone. May he be exalted as we understand and contemplate this passage better for our understanding and for our Christian life. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. This paragraph, Hebrews 10, 11 to 18, is actually the final paragraph, the final section of his long argument starting in chapter 7. In chapter 7, he has begun an argument to show that Jesus is the superior priest. He is the superior mediator between God and men. He is showing this based on the fact that God had already instituted a priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood of the tribe of Levi in the time of Moses. Though that was good and that was right and it had its place, it was not to be the source of salvation for anyone. In fact, it was only a shadow, it was only an illustration of what was to come when Christ came into the world. Therefore, the hope of the people in the Old Testament and the hope of the people now in the New Testament and until Christ returns will always and should always be in Christ and Christ alone. He has used many arguments since chapter 7 to prove this point. In fact, actually, that's what his whole letter is all about. The letter is all about faith in Christ. He's telling people, he's telling his readers, people who have already known and heard about Christ. However, they have people coming into the church, they have people who are, who are infiltrating the church and telling them, listen, yes, Christ is good and Christ is wonderful and we know that he did this and he did that, but you don't need to just believe in Christ. Actually, let's go back to Aaron and let's go back to Moses and let's go back to the law, let's go back to the Old Testament places in the ritual law and the ceremonies, the sacrifices of animals on the altar, we need to have faith in Christ plus these other things. And after all, these things were instituted by God. God is the one who said to do it, therefore it can't be wrong. The problem was they misunderstood. They misunderstood the place of the sacrifices and the ritual law. They misunderstood the place 
of the Mosaic Covenant, the first covenant. They misunderstood why God gave those. They were there as a shadow of what was to come. They were there as a type of what was to come. They were there as an illustration of what God intended to accomplish in Christ. Therefore, faith should be in Christ, always in Christ, in his death, his burial, his resurrection. He is and was the Son of God and Son of Man, perfect without any sin. Son of God and Son of Man, perfectly in one person to accomplish our redemption. This is what faith should be. It should always be in Jesus Christ, only in him and not in anyone or anything else. He summarizes and brings to a head some of the major points he has been making now in our passage, starting at verse 11. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Every priest, by every priest, he's talking about those priests who were ordained to the ministry in the time of Moses from the tribe of Levi and especially from the family of Aaron for the high priests. He's talking about them. He says, these priests are there and they are standing every day doing this ministry, which also shows that this letter was written when the temple of Jerusalem was still standing. The temple of Jerusalem was there in the time of Christ, but it was destroyed in A.D. 70. In A.D. 70, the Romans were in power in the Roman Empire at that time and of that part of the world, and because of the Jewish revolt against the Roman Empire, the Romans came to Jerusalem to destroy it. They destroyed the nation, they, they exiled many of the people, they destroyed the walls, they destroyed the temple of Jerusalem by AD 70. This passage says here, every priest stands daily ministering and offering. He's using the present tense, which means it was still there when he wrote this letter. This is an important point to make because there are some critics of the Bible who say that the Bible was written a hundred or two hundred or three hundred years after the time of the incidents, and therefore they were written by religious fanatics, therefore they were not written by God, not written by the Holy Spirit, we can't trust what it says. Don't believe the Bible, they say. That's not true. They were written by witnesses, eyewitnesses. And here he's saying, he's indicating that he's alive. Now, if he weren't alive, and his recipients read this, they would say, you're lying to us because the temple was destroyed 100 years ago and you're saying that it's still standing and priests are still offering sacrifices. You're lying to us. I don't want to believe anything else you say. He knew that. He was telling the facts. And the facts were that he was writing as a contemporary and he said, the temple over there, the priests are still working and doing all this. Why are they doing all this? He says further, they are standing. They are standing. In contrast to Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. The priests stand, as it says in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 5, that the priests were to stand and to serve the Lord. They were to stand and to serve. In fact, the Jews, in their own writings outside of the Bible, they speak of the priests, when they minister, they're always standing. They're always standing. Those who are always standing in the temple means... 
that they're always working because what they're doing is insufficient. Why are they always standing? Because what they're doing is insufficient to pay for sins, which is the point he makes. Every priest stands. He's not seated, as it says in verse 12 of Christ, who sat down at the right hand of God. Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father, but the priests are still standing and working and working and working and working. They don't have any rest. Now, it's not the same one priest who's standing 24-7 because they have a rotation. They have sections and rotations of priests who are always busy and working there in the temple. 24-7. Yes, even on the Sabbath day. If you read Numbers chapter 28, there it clearly shows in Numbers 28, 1 to 10, that the priests were supposed to do these sacrifices even on the Sabbath day. So they had no rest 24-7. One priest or another, or a group of priests or more, they were always working and working and working in the temple to offer sacrifices. That's why he says, every priest stands daily, daily. And then each day, they had special sacrifices in the morning and in the evening. They had special times of sacrifices, but they also had sacrifices that would be, that would be brought by the people all the time throughout the day. The people, whenever they sinned in one manner or another, they were obligated to bring animals into the temple compound. And when they came into the temple compound, the priests would have to deal with those animals and offer them on the altar. They were doing this every day and all the time. God told them to do it, so it was right. But why would that kind of system pay for their eternal souls, pay for the sins of their souls? No, his point is no, that's not it. They are standing day after day and throughout the day, all day long, at special times and at regular times whenever people would approach them. Ministering and offering, it says, time after time. Time after time. In verse 1, he says, year by year, and continually. Verse 3, he says, year by year. In verse 11, daily, time after time. This is the way the priest would be working, constantly working like this. In contrast, though, what about Christ? In contrast to time after time is Christ, for it says of him, it says of him in verse 10, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, meaning once for all time. Look at verse 12, but he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. One sacrifice for all time. For all time. For all time does not mean just 2,000 years ago, just when Jesus came and he died on the cross, from that day forward, what he means is for the whole time that the world exists, he is the one sacrifice. For the whole time that the world exists, he is the one sacrifice. We know he means that because he's using this expression for all time, but also look at Hebrews 9.15. Hebrews 9.15, he's already stated 
that he believes the Old Testament saints are also saved only by the death of Christ. Hebrews 9.15, and for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant in order that since the death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. He says right there clearly, a death, since a death has taken place for the redemption, the death of Christ, for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. The first covenant, according to Hebrews 8, is the old covenant, is the Mosaic covenant. From Moses' time onward, this first covenant, the transgressions that happened while that was in place, while that was the law, during that time, he says, it was for, Jesus' death was for the redemption of those sins also. That's why when we see in chapter 10, when he says, for all time, once for all, he's talking about throughout the Old Testament and throughout all human history, which means from Genesis to Revelation, from Adam until the last soul is saved before Christ returns, this is how they're saved, by the death of Christ. He further says, makes a contrast in verse 11. He says that the same sacrifices, which he has also mentioned in verse 1, he says, can never by the same sacrifices year by year. Same sacrifices. Now, if the unblemished, let's just use one example, if the unblemished male one-year-old lamb is going to pay for their sins, then why is that same sacrifice offered every day, every week, every month, every season, every festival, every year? Why is the same animal, whether it's that animal or another kind of animal, that's offered regularly, the same sacrifices, if it suffices for redemption, then why is it repeatedly offered? Why didn't it take care of it the first time? If it took care of sins the first time, then why continually do that? In contrast, what about Christ? He says here in verse 10, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The body of Christ. Verse 12, But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14, But... For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. One offering, one body, only Jesus Christ. He emphasizes and contrasts one offering by Christ, the body of Christ, who is a perfect man, son of God and son of man, perfect in one person. Not an animal, not a lamb, not a sheep, not a goat, not a bull, not even a grain offering. That's not what saves us. It's Christ's death that saves us, only his death on the cross. He emphasizes contrast. Notice, he says never in verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Never. Verse 2. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? He says, if it was in the animals, then why not just one time, and then you would not have a guilty conscience 
for your sins. You would not have that guilty conscience anymore because it would have been offered once. But verse 4, he says, or 3, but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. They are constantly reminded of the guilt of their sins. Verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. He says it's impossible for them to take away sins. Verse 11, and every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Never take away sins. Impossible. Cannot. It will not happen. But Jesus' death will make it happen. Only Christ will make it happen. Only His payment on the cross will make our redemption possible. It's a clear contrast. It's obvious what he's saying here. There is no way to mistake his argument, not just in this paragraph, but throughout his letter. His whole letter, there's no way to mistake, there's no way to be ambiguous. We know what he's talking about. He's making a clear distinction and saying our only hope is in Christ. Our only hope. Furthermore, we note in verse 10, we've been referring to verse 10 because it's kind of a hinge between the previous paragraph and this one. Verse 10, by this will, we have been sanctified. Notice he says, we have been sanctified. Have been sanctified. Why does he say it that way? And also in verse 14, for by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Notice the phraseology. We have been sanctified, verse 10. Verse 14, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. A little bit of grammar here. When the active voice of a verb is used, he hit the ball. That means the subject hit the ball. But what if we're talking about a baseball player and we say the, the, uh, the player was hit by the ball. The player was hit by the ball. Means someone else or something else hit him, hit the subject. So who here, who here has been sanctified? That's the main, the source of sanctification is Christ. He has perfected, verse 14, for all time, those who are sanctified. So, being sanctified means someone is doing that sanctification to us, for us, onto us. We are receiving that benefit of sanctification. We have been sanctified. We have been made holy. That's the meaning of the word sanctified. How did we get made holy? How did that happen? How are we sanctified? Because someone did it to us. Someone did it for us. We benefited because it was God. It was a one-way street from heaven to earth for our benefit. It's not a two-way street. It's not God's will and our will. We don't cooperate. We don't sit at the table together and strike a deal. And, and we both don't shake hands and strike a deal. That's not the way it works. It was from God to us. We were not looking for Him. We were living in our sins. We were enjoying our life and our pleasures and our lusts. We were doing all of these things when God had to stop us. God had to 
get our attention. God had to bring misery into our life, and then he had the payment of Christ applied to us. He had the death of Christ, his righteousness, applied to us, to our account. Then we woke up. Then our eyes were opened. Our heart was changed. That's what he's implying here. Verse 10, we have been sanctified. And verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. We become changed because God changed us. We become righteous or holy because God gives Christ's holiness, his righteousness, to our account. That's why the scripture says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for he made him who knew no sin to become the sin offering on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus is the righteousness of God and if we are in him, he is our sin offering. He takes away our sin, not a goat and not a sheep. Jesus does. Verse 13, 12 and 13, also say that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. When Jesus ascended into heaven, this is the importance of the ascension of Christ. The ascension of Christ is a doctrine, a belief of the Bible that is not studied very much. If nobody really talks about it very much. Nobody really believes it very much. What happened in his ascension? That is, he, rose, he died on the cross, he was buried for three days, he rose on the third day, and for a period of 40 days, he showed himself alive with many infallible or convincing proofs to his disciples, and even to more than 500 brethren at one time. He did all of this for a period of 40 days, with numerous occasions of interacting with them and showing them he actually did rise from the dead in a physical body. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, Jesus said, and he rose up from the grave. For 40 days he went around, uh, among the people and demonstrated this. But after the 40 days, in Acts chapter 1, he went onto a mountain, and he took some, his disciples with him, he gave them a charge, and then while angels were there, he was lifted up into heaven while they looked on. They were eyewitnesses of his ascension, which means he did not die again. Nobody killed him. No, nobody took him into a cave. Nothing like that happened. He ascended while they were looking, and the clouds in heaven received him out of their sight. And the angels said, Why do you stand here, men, men of Galilee? Why do you still stand here gazing up into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you will come back in the same way that you saw him go up. So he went up into heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father. That's what actually happened. That miracle actually happened. He is in heaven right now at the right hand of the Father, and he's reigning and ruling. He's not twiddling his thumbs. He's not sleeping. He's not eating. He's not busy on another planet. Nothing like that is happening. He is there reigning and ruling over this world. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's why it says he's at the right hand of the Father, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. He's waiting until the return of Christ happens 
He's waiting until the end of the world, and when that end of the world happens, his enemies, the enemies of Christ, will be made a footstool for his feet. He's going to deal with them in a way that is shameful, in a way that they don't want to be treated, his enemies, the enemies of Christ. Jesus is now reigning. He has all power. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus said, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. He is reigning and he is ruling. So, if Jesus is seated there and he's not working every day like a priest, don't you think his sacrifice is better than the priest's sacrifice? Anything that the priest might give on our behalf isn't better because he's seated there, he's reigning, he's ruling, and he's got enemies to destroy? That's another thing. Why is he there? He's there because he's awaiting for everyone who is to be saved, to be saved. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 2 Peter 3, 9. He's waiting for all to come to repentance. That's what he's waiting for. But he's also waiting, when that last person is saved, to destroy all of his enemies. Who will he destroy? He will destroy the world, the flesh, and the devil, and death. These are his enemies. The world he will destroy. He will destroy the world. We know this to be the case because it says in 1 John 5, 4, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And what is it that overcomes the world? Our faith. Our faith will overcome the world. And then on that day of judgment, 1 Corinthians 6, 2, and 3, do you not know? that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Therefore, one of the enemies of Christ is the world, and we will participate in judging the world. Do you not know that, he said? 1 Corinthians 6, 2. Furthermore, we'll judge angels, as Jesus has judged the chief of the angels, the ruler of the demons, Satan himself. That's another enemy. 1 John 3, 8. The Son of God appeared... For this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, 8. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now the ruler of this world is judged, Jesus said. Because when he died on the cross, that was the, the foretaste, that was the deposit of destruction for the devil. That was the way Jesus was going to destroy the devil, ultimately manifested by his death on the cross. Further, the flesh. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Paul asked the question. Romans chapter 7. And then he says in Romans 7, 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. How are we going to be set free from our fleshly bodies, our carnal, lustful, sinful desires? How will we, will we be set free? One day, God will take it all away from us. And we will not sin anymore. There will no longer, for all eternity, for those who are redeemed, there will be no sin in us. No sinful thoughts, no sinful words, no, no sinful actions. Nothing like that. It will all be taken away. He will conquer the flesh forever. And also death. Isn't death our enemy? It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Jesus is reigning and ruling... And he's awaiting for the conquest of death. 
It says, 1 Corinthians 15, 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. This is why we look forward to a resurrected body, an immortal, glorified, resurrected body that will not be susceptible to death anymore. There's no mortality. There is only going to be forever immortality, no death, because God will take away death from us for all eternity. We won't have that. These are his enemies that he awaits to destroy. Now, if we are not his enemies, we are his friends, not his foes. If we are his friends, how are we his friends? Because we're in him. We believe in him. We believe in his means of our redemption. Not our own means, not a fictitious means, not the means of another religion, but his means, his way of redemption. And if his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet, we will be right there, according to 1 Corinthians 6, 2-3. We will judge the world, and we will also judge angels. Do you not know this? Yes, we know it. We know it because we belong to him. We're not his enemies. We've been saved. Furthermore, verses 15 to 18, our apostle is proving his point by constantly reminding us, as he quoted Psalm 110, in, in verse 13 he quoted Psalm 110, now he's going to quote from Jeremiah 31. In verse 15, 15 to 17, he's going to quote Jeremiah 31 to show that what he's arguing is not his invention. What he's arguing is not his religious fanaticism. What he's arguing is not a new idea. No one can undermine his argument because David knew this, he's saying, by quoting Psalm 110. And in verses 15 to 17, he's quoting Jeremiah. Jeremiah the prophet. And who is going to dispute that Jeremiah was a true prophet of God? At least not those who hold the Bible in their hands. They don't typically say Jeremiah was a false prophet. No, they believe he was a true prophet. Notice how he introduces Jeremiah's quote in verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. The Holy Spirit bears witness to us. We can learn a few things from this amazing expression. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. Who wrote the book of Jeremiah? He's about to quote Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34. Jeremiah, the holy prophet, the servant of the Lord, he is the one who actually wrote the pages of the book of Jeremiah. He wrote it with his own hand and also with the help of his scribe, Baruch. Jeremiah chapter 41 describes that. That Baruch was the one, the secretary, the scribe, that wrote the book of Jeremiah for Jeremiah the prophet. He's the man who wrote it. The holy, redeemed servant of the Lord, he's the one who wrote it. But according to verse 15, the Holy Spirit wrote it. The Holy Spirit guided Jeremiah the prophet to write the words in the book of Jeremiah. The Holy Spirit. That's God. God did. This is what 2 Peter chapter 1, 20 to 21 says. 2 Peter chapter 1, 20 to 21 says, No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. 
but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Peter says that. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, and that's what he says here. We can trust what Jeremiah says because it was not his own words, not his invention. It was the words of the Holy Spirit that guided him to write what he wrote. He also testifies. He testifies to us. The Holy Spirit is a witness. He testifies. This is the language of the courtroom. The Holy Spirit is a faithful witness. He's going to tell the truth, the honest truth, and nothing but the truth. The Holy Spirit will tell us what we need to know to act accordingly in the case. The judge cannot act accordingly unless he knows all the facts. The Holy Spirit is a faithful witness in the courtroom presenting all the facts so that those there in the courtroom might know exactly how they are to sentence or how they're to decide the case. The Holy Spirit is that one. He's not just a witness, though, for all those people back there, all those people back then in the time of Jeremiah. Jeremiah lived in 600 B.C. He wasn't just a witness for his own contemporaries. Here he tells us he's a witness to us, to us right now. So here in the time of Hebrews, 600 years after Jeremiah, he's a witness to that generation, but not just to that generation, but to every generation. Jeremiah, what he said, was not only true in his day, not only true in the first century in the time of the apostles, but also true in our day. Because the word of God is the living and abiding word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Romans 15, 4. Now these things happen to them as examples for us, so that we should not crave evil things as they also crave. Now not only was it written for Abraham's benefit that he was reckoned righteous, but for our benefit also it was written that he was righteous. Romans 4, 23-25. It was also for us. The word of God is very relevant, is very practical in the way the Bible means it. And that means whatever salvation is being described here is not just for those people back then. It's also for us. 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart and upon their mind I will write them. Although he has quoted this passage before, he's trying to emphasize right here the fact that God makes a covenant and it's God's covenant with us. This new covenant is God's covenant with us. It's not him cooperating with us. It's not him asking for our input. He's not consulting us. He's not asking us, you think it's, this is good or not? Is this good enough for you? You want this or not? He's not doing it that way. He's not standing and he's not uh, at the door and wooing us. He's not doing things like that. He is making a covenant. He is establishing a relationship with us by this relationship or this covenant. It's a one-way street from heaven down here. God changes us and he makes us into new people. This is the covenant, the new covenant. And notice, what does he do with this one-way action? What does he do? I will put my laws upon their heart and upon their mind, I will write them. That means that we did not have 
his laws on our heart or mind. He's talking about our inner man. He's talking about our spirit or our soul. He's not saying it literally. God doesn't literally take a stylus or take a pen and then go over to our chest or open our chest and on the inside write on the heart. He's not talking literally. He's talking metaphorically and spiritually that there's something that's needed inside of us that's not there. What's inside of us that isn't there that God will put there? When he, in his covenant, changes us. When he changes us, what will he do? We did not want to obey him. We did not want to know what his laws were. We did not want to do whatever we knew of his laws. We hated it. It was bitter to us. It was distasteful to us. We wanted to vomit it out every time we heard it. We didn't want anything to do with it. But then, when God changed us, and he changed our heart, he put his laws on our heart, and then they became sweet. They became pleasant. They became everything we wanted to know and do. We said, God, what else do you want me to do today? I'm ready to do your will. I'm here, and I am your servant. You are my master. I am your slave. I will do whatever you tell me, and it doesn't matter. As John says in 1 John 5, 3, his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. When God changes our heart, we are with great enthusiasm asking him, Lord, what do you want me to do? And I will not consider it a burden. I don't even think it's a burden because I have this great joy. I have this great desire to do whatever you tell me and it won't hamper me. I don't feel like it's a burden. It's not, it's not an encumbrance. It's not as though I'm trying to carry a thousand pounds on my shoulders. It's not like that. I don't look at it that way because his commandments are not burdensome. And what was the change? What made the change? Because God changed our heart. When he changes our heart, then his laws are there, and they are there sweetly. They are there pleasantly. They are there with great enthusiasm and joy, because I love God. He redeemed me. I know him. I know what Christ has done for me. And now my life is his life. Behold, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things passed away. Behold, the new things have come. We understand that. We understand it. We believe it. And we want to live in that life. And what has happened? What is the great transaction also that has happened in terms of our debt to God? Verse 17. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Whatever we have done as an affront to the nature and character of God, our sins won't be remembered against us. Our lawless deeds, whatever we have done to transgress the written word of God, the law of God. We were lawbreakers. We were not law keepers. We were lawbreakers. We disobeyed whatever God told us to avoid. And then we did not do whatever God told us to do. We were law. Breakers. So he says, our sins against him and his person and our sins or transgressions against the laws of God, I will remember no more. Because we're in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 Because we are in Christ, God will not take our sins and hold them against us. He's not going to bring them up on the day of judgment like in order to hold us accountable and to condemn us. 
it says, I will remember no more. I will remember no more means he will not hold them against us on the day of judgment. It doesn't mean that God loses from his mind or his memory everything we've done. That's impossible. God is God. He is eternal. And it is impossible for him to forget anything. But what he does mean for our benefit, he won't hold our sins against us on the day of judgment. That's what he means. And we can see an example of that from Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 22. In Ezekiel 18, 22, when he's holding uh, forth and offering forgiveness to the people, he says, I will not remember his sins against him. I will not remember his sins against him. And that's what he's telling us to. He's telling us, he will not remember our sins against us. This is the sense in which, verse 2, if the animals sufficed, we would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But because the animals do not suffice, and Jesus does suffice, now we can have a clean spirit. Now we can have a, a clean conscience. We can know that we are acceptable in the sight of God, not because of ourselves, but because of Christ. And we are forgiven. He has taken it all away. 18. Finally, he says, Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Where there is forgiveness, there is no longer any offering for sin. Because the offering was already given. The offering was already presented. That is, the death of Christ was already there for our sins. So, if His death is sufficient to forgive us our sins, there's no need for more and more offerings. He died just once in history, and that's it. No, no death of Christ plus animals, no death of Christ plus another human, no death of Christ plus the death of our firstborn, like the people thought in Micah chapter 6. Shall I give my firstborn for my sins? And God saying no. His answer basically is no. I'm not going to do that. I don't want that from you. And it's not even that Jesus is offered again and again and again. He died only once. He does not die every time we partake of communion. He does not die every time the masses prayed in a Catholic service. He's not dying constantly throughout history. That's not the way it works. He died once, and that's the only sacrifice that should be our hope. Jesus in our place. Let's believe in him. This is the way he concludes. Saying, we are forgiven and we should look nowhere else for a sacrifice for sins, for an offering for sins. Let's put our faith in Christ. Not ourselves, not our good works, not in any kind of philosophy or theology that we concoct, nothing like that, only Christ, based on the word of Christ, based on the death of Christ, by means of the power of the Spirit of Christ within us. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.